It's poverty. It's crime. Unemployment. Corruption. Accountability. The energy crisis. Inflation. We are worried. That South Africa has myriad problems on all fronts is a given. But the time has come for us to look for real solutions. I'm Jeremy Maggs, and this MoneyWeb podcast will discuss those solutions on how South Africans can solve problems by having tough conversations and drawing on the insights of South Africa's top business leaders. Welcome to Fix SA. Tony Leon served as leader of the opposition from 1999 to 2007 as leader of the Democratic Alliance and led the DA from its inception in 2000. Now, like him or loathe him, he has a strong opinion on politics, society and the economy. And let me tell you, he is not afraid to express them. A very warm welcome to Fix SA here on MoneyWeb. I'm Jeremy Maggs, where we ask our guests how we can make things better. How do we improve matters? How in the shortest space of time can we become competitive and successful as a nation once again? Tony Leon, a very warm welcome and let's wade straight in. If I were to ask you what your pessimism level was right now, where does it stand? Oh, hi, Jeremy. Thanks very much. Nice to be with you again. Uh, It stands uh, in the red zone. I think we're in the most terrible state. I, you don't need me to tell you this. You can look at around you. You can look at the metrics. You can speak to any group of people, literally from you know unemployed guys to business titans. I don't think anyone thinks that the country is in the condition it should be in, could be in, and perhaps with a, a change of direction might be in. So it, it's gone catastrophically wrong. And it, really, I, I'm not one of these people you know, who takes any joy, schadenfreude and saying, I told you so. But, you know, all the early warnings were missed, all the easier roads that we could have taken, fiscally, economically, politically weren't taken. And so we are where we are. And, you know, Jeremy, I don't know if one still can in these woke, politically correct time tell jokes that ever, but there was a great Irish joke about some traveler who got completely lost his car in the middle of the night, couldn't find where he was somewhere off the coast of Ireland, he stopped uh, an old Irish guy and he said, um, can you tell me how I'm going to get to Tipperary? So the chap said, to, looked him bleakly and said, I wouldn't start from here. And, you know, we are here. And the question is, do we remain here or worse or do we get out of here? I think that's, to me, the challenge and the question. So do you think we can fix things or as some of those titans that you refer to have told me in previous conversations, we are either at the point of no return beyond repair or very close to it? Well, I think we are. We've made a lot of things chronically, I wouldn't say irreparable, but but you know, damage them profoundly, you know, from our ports to our rails, to our electricity and uh, to our investor credibility, to our place in the world. You know, Jeremy, I, I was, uh, you've obviously seen it, that Ricardo Hausman, someone I, I know, and when I was briefly at Harvard four months, I spent a lot of time in his lectures and seminars, that Growth uh, South Africa document that was published by the CDE last week, mm. What is, apart from, you know, the prescriptions he gives and the maladies he points out, it's the opening paragraph that is so striking where he says he describes the ocean of possibilities that were lapping on the shores of South Africa in 1994. Apartheid had ended, Mandela was president. We had the most advanced, sophisticated, industrialized economy in Africa. Sanctions were being lifted. And as they say in the vernacular, Keiku Lakons, no, but I had an interesting account. I don't want to do these things at second remove, Jeremy, but mm. it was with one of our 
more successful self-made business guys in this country. And he said to me two things. He, we were talking about the future, and he said, well, he's absolutely determined to stay here. But he said, I'm in my 80s after all. And then he said, for my grandchildren, I'm not so sure. And then we got on to diagnosing the sort of diagnosis you do on Fix SA. And he said, but you know, this country does have a lot of resilience. And despite or because of the worst efforts of the government, it still can be ways of navigating out of the morass we're in. So I think that is a cause of hope, although hope is a precious commodity, but it's worth hanging on to. Tony Leon, one of my favorite writers, Rebecca Davis, on the Daily Maverick, wrote a piece a while back, and she said she's become so tired of being a South African known for resilience. Uh, it's such an overtraded word. Aren't you tired of being resilient? Absolutely. But look, as a National Party MP said to me when I arrived from in Parliament in 1989 from the uber-liberal constituency of Houghton and Johannesburg, he said, your voters can buy their apartheid, which, of course, was true. So I can buy my resilience, and doubtless you can as well. I, I can buy solar panels. I can have a borehole. I can pay a contribution to my neighborhood private security. Mm. So in a way, you can purchase – I can afford private health care in this country – you can purchase resilience, and it might be tiring, and you pay your taxes and you pay again, so you're paying twice, and it's expensive. But, you know, for most South Africans, the option of buying your resilience isn't available, so it's even more tiring for them. You know, I just can't believe, you know, the patience of most people to put up with this, and perhaps starting to realize, though, maybe this is part of our solution, Jeremy, without wearing my old hat as a political leader, that there's a return address for the misery index most people have been sent in this country, and it's called the ANC government. So maybe you'll see at the polls next year mm. some comeuppance. I don't know, but uh, as you say, hope. Tony Leon, I want to segue into solutions in just a moment. That, after all, is the raison d'etre of this podcast. But let's continue looking at the problems just for a little while longer. And you wrote recently that we in this country seem to think that the crises in South Africa have just arrived. And that's not true, of course. This so-called frog has been boiling in the water for a long time. It has. And I thought I was very struck the other day by the former spokesman uh, person of ESCOM, Sikonati, who said, basically, uh, look, for 17 years, the, the, the ANC government have created the ESCOM crisis and entirely wholly and deservedly belongs to them. And there were warnings, you know, I, I don't want to sound like one of these winwees or, you know, one of these uh, retro guys, but I suppose I am retro at 66. But I was in Parliament when Alec Irwin was a Minister of Public Enterprise, and he conjured up every excuse imaginable, including he claimed some white engineer sabotage Kuburg for the first blackouts that we were getting, and this was in the year 2006. But, of course, they didn't fix the problem, or they fixed it in a way that was economically ruinous and managerially incompetent. You think of what's happened at Kusili and, and the other mega power stations, which you have cost billions and still have yet to produce electricity. So they didn't do that. And there was a kind of hubris which took hold that basically the state, as we're busy incapacitating it, can do anything. And there was no appreciation of limits at all. I think there were limits during the Mbeki administration in its early years. I think they started to fade as he was exiting from power, and they've disappeared completely since. So that, you know, the heart of a, let's call them a polycrisis, because there are so many of them, but they come from the same place, 
is because of bad personnel in charge of key institutions, very bad policies, and managerial misapplication or no application. You know, if I can, because he died today, you know, Charlie Munger, who was the, it was, he died at the grand age of 99, mm. and the one half of Berkshire Hathaway, as you know, with Warren Buffett. And I just, there's, the Wall Street Journal had a, a roll call of his more famous aphorisms. And if I could just read one of them, because I think it goes to the heart of our dilemma. He said, people chronically misappraise the limits of their own knowledge. That's one of the most basic parts of human nature. Knowing what you don't know is much more useful in life and business than being brilliant. Knowing the edge of your circle of competence is one of the most difficult things for a human being to do. So, you know, I would say without at the risk of without being rude, but stating the blinding obvious that the circle of competence in government, in our state enterprises is vanishingly small, Jeremy. So if you were to change that immediately, you would start, I think, to turn things around somewhat. But you'd have to go not just horizontally across the top leadership, but vertically as well. And that's quite hard to do because the comrades, the cadres are very, very embedded in every institution, and many of them, perhaps most of them, weren't appointed for their technocratic ability or on meritorious grounds, but for other reasons that you and the listeners are very familiar with. But you start to change that culture, I think you do bring a change about. And I think, of course, you know, despite this ridiculous minister in the presidency who said the private sector is trying to destroy the government, uh, which actually be a noble enterprise, given the government is so, has been so ruinous for all of South Africa, but they aren't. Uh, I think you need far more of the business sector to climb aboard the governing sector and help right-size things. I want to return to the role of business in just a moment, but I want to take you back to that word limits that you've just used. Tell me what limits you're referring to. How do you find them again, and how do you reset them? Well, once again, if you go back to the dawn of democracy here, you had a government which came to power with no governing experience. Mandela said rather quaintly, We've come from the bush, uh, which, of course, was an exaggeration, but he was giving an indication of the skills gap. It, because you go straight from a guerrilla or exile operation to government, you don't have the skills, obviously. And uh, there was a lot of cooperation because government genuinely did not think it had all the answers or all the people to provide the answers. So they did bring in a lot of consultation with the private sector. They didn't initially gut the state sector of all its expertise. That started quickly, but it wasn't the initial impulse. And there were a lot of competent people in the public service who would have served any master, whether it was national or African national, and they weren't saboteurs or fifth columnists or whatever they were seen to be, most of them, and they were all discarded. So we, we got rid of our knowledge base in, in pretty short order, and then we declined, I'm just going to say we, the government, to actually say, you know, there's no reason that a professor from the University of Johannesburg should run a modern airline. I believe, incidentally, the CEO of South African Airways is exactly that, an academic from the University of Johannesburg without a strong aviation background. He is indeed. He's John, John Lamola, yeah. Yes. Mm. He's obviously a vast improvement on Dudu Mayeni, who should have been charged five or six years ago, uh, but wasn't, and eventually the snail-esque uh, National Prosecuting Authority might deign to serve a, a summons on her at some point in the future, but don't hold your breath. 
So, you know, why? And I, I know, I've never met Professor Lamola, but I would imagine if you searched the world of aviation, you needed to resuscitate a failed airline, I wouldn't get an academic to do it. I'd go and find the best brains in the aviation business. I wouldn't get uh, into a ruinous contract as Saki Makazoma brilliantly negotiated with Coleman Andrews, who at least knew about airlines, but took the transnet for a big ride. I would go and find a competent person to start the airline. I would say, well, if we need a state airline, which actually we don't, uh, we've got to be cost efficient. We've got to be competitive, and we've got to be we've got to cut our cloth according to rather threadbare coats, and uh, or the other way around. Those are the sort of things. Mm. These, these are not giant steps. But to go back to the great Charlie Munger, knowing what you don't know is by far the most useful lesson in life, and and to acknowledge that. But you know. Prabhin Gordon, whom actually I like and I've spent some time with in politics and even in Argentina, is an absolute ideologue who's got no background in business. He's very clever and he's not corrupt, but he's a pharmacist. You know, he's not a business manager. And Ibrahim Patel, also intelligent, also not corrupt, deeply ideological, you know, is a trade unionist. (laughs) Should these guys be the conductors of our economy? Well, clearly not. If you look at the state of the economy, you look at what's 71,000 containers or more now are waiting to enter the ports of South Africa. You look at the, it's been a disaster. So you've got to change that. So let me suggest to you then, Tony Leon, that one of the fixes for South Africa you're suggesting in terms of finding those limits again is getting the right people in the right jobs doing the right thing. But let me come right back at you and say to you that many of them have gone, most of them are disillusioned, and uh, quite a few of them are just angry and have given up. I think that's entirely correct. And let's be perfectly honest, and we don't have time to go into the pros and cons of his tenure. When someone from the private sector was hand-picked by Prabhin Gordon and brought into ESCOM, namely Andre Dorota, we know how that worked out. So, you know, that was mission impossible from the get-go, and it proved to be mission, you know, poison at the end of it. Don't don't drink the coffee. So it's not easy. I, look, I do think there are enough, you know, good people in this country. And even I, I spend some time, you know, traveling outside this country. And I actually find where people are deeply uh, unhappy with how South Africa is looking and what's become of it. I, I still think there's an enormous wellspring of affection for the country and for its future by a lot of people outside. But you can't bring people in to do things and say, well, you can only do it on our limits. Uh, you know, our, one of the people I do know very well, and I'd better be a bit discreet here, who really understands ESCOM, who'd actually been there before he became a billionaire in other spheres. And he's a real business guy, but he's got a background in ESCOM from many years ago. He was tapped at one stage or other by Cyril, you know, would look at ESCOM and he did. And I said to him, well, would you come back as the CEO? This is before Dorato, before the poisoning, before the rampant corruption and malfunctioning was was revealed. And he said, yes, I would, subject to conditions. So I said, well, what are those? He said, number one, I pick the board, or at least the board is chosen by independent energy experts, not by the ANC government. And number two, I only meet the shareholder, being the state, once a year at the AGM, and I don't have to run interference from them in all the days in between. Well, of course, that would have immensely, not entirely, sorted out many of the problems, but it was never going to happen. 
So how do you how do you convince the right people then in business with the right skills to step up? Uh, you've quoted Andre Dureto. You've mentioned Andre Dureto. I'll throw Mark Barnes from the South African Post Office at you. All stepped up, sought as a degree of national service, I guess, and then just uh, left because they couldn't take it anymore. Absolutely. And, and there was none of the security controversies around Mark as there was around Andre Dureta. So maybe even a better example you provided. And he was basically thrown out on his ear because uh, the government uh, didn't like the approach he was taking on the creation of a post bank that they wouldn't actually have controlled themselves or the cronies there and the corrupt elite wouldn't have had access to it in the way they wanted. I think that was the reason. Look, Jeremy, once again, speaking to my old book, the only way that business is going to change South Africa is for business to change the government of South Africa. It's very simple. I mean, I don't know. I believe there were tens of millions were spent by leading members of our business community to ensure Sir Ramaphosa prevailed at NASREC in 2017. Well, they should institute some action in our law called the Actio Quanta Minoris, where you can get your money back or portion on your purchase price back for a false or fraudulent misrepresentation. So I think the business guys who backed Sir Ramaphosa and imagined that somehow there was a reformist element in the ANC that he would lead to a bright new dawn have been completely, comprehensively and thoroughly duped because either he had the intention and lacked the will to execute it or he never had the intention. And I think what is absolutely abundantly clear now to everyone is that the ANC is unreformable and irredeemable. So if I was saying, look, I'm a business guy and I want to help fix South Africa, you've got to fix the government because under this government, continuing for the next five years or even in worse form, propped up by the EFF, then genuinely there's no future here at all. So that's what I would do. Of course, um, I, I would help bring about. And I do think, I don't know directly, but I hear that you're going to see a much uh, deeper or more high-profile business involvement in the next election here because, you know, the ANC that claims to be Marxist has actually inverted Marxism. You remember Marx said the economic structure determines the political superstructure. Well, actually, in South Africa, we've learned that the economics is dictated by the politics. And when you've got rotten politics, which we have, you get very bad economic outcome, which we do have as well. So on the one hand, you might get business being forced uh, to become more involved in politics. On the other hand, and uh, I'm sure the business unity South African, probably Ned Lack would lash me for saying this, but there's also, as, as what one businessman said to me is that, you know, let's adopt the Italian option here, is that business just continues uh, with government or uh, in spite of itself without uh, any involvement or relationship or association with government, that uh, it, it just gets further and further apart. Look, uh, the Italian option is fine. I mean, and it's perfectly legitimate. Just as I, I always keep saying, oh, it's terrible if you don't go and vote in the elections. Well, if the whole system's failed and you see no attractive options, absolutely you shouldn't vote. So if a business person says, I want nothing to do with the government, they've, they've completely stuffed up this place, uh, they're irredeemable, I'm going to do everything outside the government. That's a sort of an anarcho-capitalist approach that nothing good can come from within the state and the only good things happen without the state. Mr. Millet in Argentina proved that to be a winning formula last Sunday, as you saw. But the issue is you can do that, except where, in fact, the state's hand, dead hand, is now so 
extreme that if you're running a retail enterprise, you can't get anything that you need into port because there's 71,000 containers stuck outside our ports at the moment. You know, that's where you do need to change the state because absent of having a private harbour and terminal, which I see someone at Transnet is now advocating for at last, but it's going to take years to create that. Uh, we still, there are areas where the state, you can't buy your way out of the state and entry points into the country are one such example. So, Tony Leon, let me uh, give you the keys to Tainhase, uh, something that in your political career eluded you. And uh, I've given you the presidential powers for uh, a couple of days. And your single task is to prioritize what needs to be fixed first. Where do you start and who do you call to help you? Oh, I would, uh, if, if I knew I was going to become president, I would have had a search team in advance to work out the greatest bottlenecks or throttle points on our economy and therefore on the country's well-being. And I would have a team lined up to ready to step in and to take over. I would also obviously require certain extraordinary powers, which have to be carefully delimited under our constitution, to be able to hire and fire key people who are currently part of the problem and not part of the solution. This will be quite technically awkward, but I'm sure with enough will and with enough golden handshakes could be done. So the first thing would be to change the personnel. And then I would have a legislative package to bring to Parliament, which presumably if I became president, I'd have some say over. And I'd say, okay, these are the 10 areas of governance which have absolutely failed from Public Finance Management Act to the Public Service Act, which facilitated paid deployment. And these are the amendments. So in other words, I would have planned it to the extent I had any notes at all in advance so that I could hit the ground running. You know, one of Tob and Becky's ministers, whom I saw the other day, said to me, he, he wonders why Ramaphosa gets up in the morning. Why does he want to be president other than to have it on his resume? What's he do? What's his theory of the case? It's a very good question. So I would have a theory of the case and I would put in place or I'd, in anticipation the legislative, the regulatory, and the personnel steps and changes to really bring about mm. a turnaround. And obviously, you can turn things around. I, you know, there's no situation in the world. It's an extreme example. I've just come back at my ripe old age of a first visit to Japan a few weeks ago. And, you know, you, I guess you saw and some of your listeners would have seen that movie Oppenheimer. You know, Japan was absolutely devastated in the Second World War. Well, it survived. Uh, you know, death and destruction and uh, two nuclear bombs, and it survived seven years of American occupation. In fact, in many ways, it Americanized itself. It melded together in very ancient culture, a very nationalistic culture, with a more international worldview. And it, although the Japanese economy had some big issues recently, it is an extraordinarily successful and seems to be on the surface fairly harmonious society in the Far East, that has, you know, both Confucian and First World values. So driven, driven, Tony Leon, by a work ethic. By an unbelievable work ethic. <laughs> I was getting on the Shenkensen uh, the bullet train going to a place called Kanazawa, and, and there was some Brit standing next to me. And it, you stand at, well, I don't know if you've been to Japan, but, you, you know, you stand at number eight because that means you're in carriage number eight. You've got a ticket, mm. and that's, the train stops right in front of you. And it stops at 1526, and that it leaves at 1526. It's got a minute to get on board. And this Brit said to me, well, you rather think if it arrived at 1527, 1526, 
the chairman of Japan Railways would uh, resign. I said, or commit harikiri. But the point is, Jeremy, there's a work ethic, there's a deep sense, cultural sense of responsibility and answerability. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's impressive, at least on the surface. And I obviously only encountered the surface. And I'm not saying you can bring in Shintoism or Buddhism into South Africa. We, we, we're not of that culture. But I think there are elements of our culture which are impressive and which do resonate and which can be applied but have been grotesquely used and abused in the last few years. So let's bring it back to Tainhais. You're still sitting there. The lights are on because you're not being load shed. Very difficult, Tony Leon, to prioritize a poly crisis. It is difficult, but, you know, <laughs> to quote from China, the journey of a thousand miles must begin with a single step, which, of course, is a complete cliche, but every cliche is a ring of truth, Jeremy, as you know. So, I, yeah, I would start with the steps. I mean, uh, with, with a step. And I'd say, well, what is the biggest single crisis? Well, it's probably electricity. So let's get that right because we are deindustrializing at a remarkable rate. It's, it's unbelievable. We've got an unemployment crisis exacerbated. What are some of the impediments to fuller employment? Uh, you know, the obvious ones, the labor regulations are too tight. The labor market is only fit for the workers that we wished we had, not the workers we actually have, to quote again Professor Hausman. So I would I would start, you know, I would come with a, a hundred sort of initiatives or 50 or whatever it is. I mean, bear in mind, and I don't, I don't want to romanticize things or use uh, misapplied parallels from history, but, you know, Franklin Roosevelt took over in uh 1932, and America was in the grips of the greatest depression ever known in that country or the world at the time, or since actually. And he came with a raft of initiatives, packages, legislative, and pushed them through in 100 days. Uh, and it wasn't just, you know, PR and walking on the Seapoint Promenade, which Cyril specialized in. It was actually legislative acts. It was regulatory acts. And so I think if you've got the right people doing the right research, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the fact that, Jeremy, we have some very good think tanks in this country. They've done some of the hard yards, you know, that have looked at what needs to be done. You take uh, the work coming out of the Center for Development and Enterprise, the CDE, for example. There's a lot of stuff there. There's the Social Market, mm. Social Market Foundation, whatever. There's the Free Market Foundation. There's a lot of stuff that's floating about, not just in the ether, but uh, is oven-ready to mangle my metaphors. And I would... You know, just bring it out and start happening. And, of course, there's going to be a lot of resistance from a lot of vested interests. But presumably, if AJ Leon was made president of South Africa, people would appreciate we've got a crisis that needs to be addressed in, as you say, a rather forthright way. I've got three questions left, Tony Leon, in the time that, uh, that remains. The first thing is the divide of cooperation that exists in South Africa. Do you think we have a willingness to bridge that divide? Do you think that uh, people, there is a willing majority of people still in South Africa that maybe occupy that center ground who really want to fix things and believe that we can? I absolutely do. And uh, there's a lot of data to support that. Of course, if you look at the echo chambers uh, like Twitter or X, whatever it's called, or you simply take some of the sort of extremist viewpoints offered on radio call-in shows and so forth, you would think that that is not the case. But I think, to use a, a misused political term, the silent majority is both a majority and silent and is mm. fairly keen to cooperate. 
There's an old cliche, an old management cliche that says if memory serves correctly, you can't manage something if you can't measure it. So if we're starting this process of fixing the country, what would define early wins or early successes, do you think? I suppose getting the lights working 24 hours a day. I think absolutely. That would. Uh, it sounds such a ridiculous thing to say in 2023 in the world, but it's such a necessary thing to say in South Africa in 2023. So that tells you where we are. Uh, absolutely. Apart from the fact, you know, it, it would help uh, prevent the further deindustrialization, the flight of companies like our mining companies and ArcelorMittal and so on. It would actually imp- hugely improve the national mood. You know, nothing. And I speak from experience. I was in Joburg the other day. And the residence I was in just the lights went out at eight o'clock at night for two hours, and the substation blew up. That is very depressing. It is mentally very disagreeable, put it that way. So I think keeping the lights on would not just you know improve our productivity, our investment profile. It would also improve the national mood. So I would start with that. Yes, there's an urgency. I'd also unblock the port so people can have a, a decent Christmas and make sure that their favourite goods are available for purchase, which currently isn't the case and go down the list. All right, last question. Um, You gave your age away, so I'm going to fast forward you uh, 20 years, Tony Leon. So you're 86 years old. What are you going to tell young people about the role that they have to play and the responsibility they have in continuing to build South Africa? Because after all, you and I are no longer the so-called baton-holding generation, are we? No, we're the baton passing generation. I, I'll be very happy to survive in good health another 20 years. hope it happens. And I'll be even happier if it happens in a reasonably peaceful and hopefully more prosperous South Africa than we have now. So if that were to be the case, I would simply say to the kids, as they certainly will be kids, anyone I'm talking to if you get into your 80s, I would say I want to take you back to a place called South Africa in 2023 which was very bleak. It didn't look as though it would have a future for 10 years, never mind 20 years, yet here we are, and it's all very much better, and you've got a a assured place in its future. So you must learn. You must learn, actually, that no situation is so bleak or as to use another cliche, Jeremy, you know, it's always darkest before dawn, and I very much hope that the next dawn won't be a false one, as the current one has proven to be. Tony Leon, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to this Fix SA podcast. For more episodes posted every second Friday, go to moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.